0: Good morning everyone. This morning's reading comes from Deuteronomy chapter 8 verses 1 through to 20. The whole commandment that I give you today you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these forty years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplined you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him for the lord your god is bringing you into a good land a land of brooks of water of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills a land of wheat and barley of vines and fig trees and pomegranates a land of olive trees and honey a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions, and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand, have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today, that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning, everyone. Let me add my greetings to Tim and to Andrew today. Uh, If you're visiting with us, a very special welcome. My name's Clint, and it's my privilege to bring God's Word to you today. Now, the story's told about three elderly sisters who lived together. One of them was aged 94, oh, sorry, their ages are 92, 94, and 96. And one night, the 96-year-old drew a bath, and as she was getting in, suddenly she had a brain freeze, and went, hang on, I can't remember, was I getting in the bath or out of the bath? The 94-year-old sister yelled back, I don't know, I'll come up and help you. And as she was going up the stairs, she stopped on the first step and thought to herself, was I going up the stairs or coming down the stairs? So she shouted to her 92-year-old sister in the kitchen, was I going up the stairs or coming down? And the 92-year-old was sitting at the kitchen table having tea, listening to her sister. She shook her head and said, I hope I never get so forgetful. And she knocked on wood just for good measure. And she said, I'm coming up to help both of you as soon as I see you's at the door. (laughs) Of course, forgetting is part of life, isn't it? I'm sure we've all had stories where we've forgotten something important. Uh, Sometimes the forgetfulness is funny. Uh, at least when we can see the funny side of it. Sometimes our forgetfulness is embarrassing, like when we forget someone's name long after the point in the relationship where it's not yet awkward to ask again. Um, Sometimes it's expensive to forget, like the time I reversed into my garage door before I'd opened it. Sometimes it's dangerous, like forgetting to take important medication or leaving a heater on. But in Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses wants God's people, both in the Old Testament and God's people here today, to know how vital it is that we don't forget. Because the forgetfulness in focus here is not just funny or or embarrassing or expensive or dangerous. This kind of forgetfulness is actually fatal. So please do keep your Bible open at that passage in Deuteronomy 8. We're going to be looking at it this morning. And would you join me as we ask for God's blessing on his word now? Let's pray. Our God and Father, your word this morning tells us that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. We pray that you'd please feed and nourish us with your word now, that our souls may be satisfied and strengthened for your service. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now. In our series that we're doing at the moment on generosity, we are jumping around the Bible a little bit. And today we're in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. This is book number five in the Old Testament and in the Bible, if you're looking for it. And Deuteronomy finds God's people freed from slavery in Egypt, now standing on the edge of the promised land. But you need to know, it's not the first time they've been here. Because 40 years ago, they stood here ready to go in, ready to go and enjoy what God had promised to give them, but they wouldn't trust God. And so God had them turn around and head back into the desert and wander around for four decades. The reason being in verse 2 that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And so, here in Deuteronomy, God's people are now getting a second chance after this period of testing. A new generation of Israelites are ready to go in and take the promised land and enjoy what God has promised. And so, Moses basically gives a sermon to the gathered people, which we have in our Bibles as the book of Deuteronomy. And he starts by recounting their failures and their faithlessness. And then by reminding them of how God has looked after them, and especially he reminds them of God's law, which is where the book gets its name from. Deuteronomy means second law. And all this initial recapping and reminding comes to a head here in chapter 8. So in your service outline, there's a little outline you can follow along this morning, make notes if you'd like. And this is from our first section in verse 1 to 10 of the passage. Technology doesn't work. There we go. Thanks, Anna. Well, in verse 1 to 10, Moses begins with a clear call to obey God and also the consequences of such obedience. So look with me at verse 1. Moses says, The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. Now, this raises a question, though, because remember, Israel had the same promises the first time, but they didn't go in. So it makes sense to ask, well, can God be trusted this time? Now We realize that the, the, the God's people failed to keep up their part of the bargain, but can God actually be trusted? This is a big ask to obey him like this, because why should they obey someone they can't trust? Trust and obedience must go hand in hand, like the old Sunday school song reminds us. And so from verse 2 onwards, Moses tells them why God can be obeyed and trusted. And that's because even as they wandered in the desert, under his discipline, he never abandoned them or broke his promise to them. So yes, they may have wandered in the desert for 40 years, but verse 2, he was still the Lord leading them. In verse 3, even though they were hungry, the Lord fed them supernaturally with a a special, highly nutritious staple. In verse 4, they're reminded that they didn't have to buy new clothes or new shoes for 40 years, because somehow, as a result of God's care for them, uh, what they had lasted the whole time. And so God has given them ample reason to trust them, trust him over the last 40 years. He's proved it consistently in the way he's cared for an important thing that Moses starts with here. But this then raises another question, which is, why God took such a roundabout route to get them back to the promised land? There's something we're reminded very early in the book of Deuteronomy, back in chapter 1, verse 2, where Moses says, it is 11 days journey from Horeb, by the way of Mount Seir, to Kadesh Barnea. Now, that probably doesn't mean much to you unless you know that Horeb is the same place as Mount Sinai, where God's people received the Ten Commandments. And Kadesh is the place where they are now. And what this all means is that the journey, which should have taken 11 days, has taken 40 years. But why? Why did God choose such a convoluted and inefficient way to finally get his people into the land? I mean, was 40 years of hardship in the desert really necessary, God? Well, here we've got to remember something crucial about the way God works. His wisdom is greater than ours. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians one twenty-five, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Of course, it's the same reason that God uses a crucified teacher rather than a, a conquering warrior, at least to, to the naked eye, to save his people. And so why did God send his people back into the desert for 40 years? Well, The answer is in verse two of Deuteronomy eight. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So through those 40 years of hardship, discomfort and difficulty, the Lord grew their humility. He grew their trust in him. He grew their obedience and prepared them for what was to come next. So look at verse three, he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And yes, those are the same words that Jesus quoted powerfully uh, to Satan during his testing in the desert. So this wasn't just punishment. This was discipline. As we read in verse five, God, God was disciplining them as children that he loves, not, uh, not punishing them as criminals. And again, this reminds us of God's character. And it's something the story of the Exodus shows us quite clearly. God has chosen his people based on his choice alone, and he will keep his word to them. It's not based on their ability to impress him through their obedience or their religious performance. God chooses them first and then calls them to obey and not the other way around. And so, yes, the Lord may discipline his people for their sin, but he will never abandon them for their sin. And, yes, the Lord hasn't changed even today. And so now the time of discipline is over. God's people are on the edge of the promised land. They're ready to go in. Scarcity is going to turn to abundance, wandering into settlement. And what's the right response then to God's generosity? Well, look with me at verse 6. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And then notice this, you shall eat and be full, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. It sounds like an absolutely amazing place. It's the complete opposite of the the desert that's been their their home for the last four decades with its rocks and sand and little water. As long as they treat God as God and live his way, verse 6, they can enjoy all these good gifts from his hand in satisfaction and contentment, joyfully giving thanks and credit to God. This is the ideal life in the land. What could possibly go wrong? Well, this brings us to our second heading, because there is something that could go wrong. (coughs) Excuse me. Please look with me at verse 11. Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God. Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God. The greatest danger to God's covenant people at this point and going forward, it's not the armies of enemy kingdoms, it's not the the change of weather patterns that affect their crops, it's not illness and disease, it's not dissension. It's their own capacity to forget. Why might they forget? In fact, how could they possibly forget after this 40-year life lesson that God's given them in the desert? with God himself walking with them every step of the way, how could they possibly forget? Well, the explanation shouldn't really surprise us. Please look with me at verse 11 again. Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God. What does it look like for a heart to be lifted up? Well, the answer is in verse 17. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. One commentator observes, it is natural to look to God in the desert when nothing comes easily and when death is always near. But when there is plenty, human nature finds it harder to give God his due. And then in the second section, Moses traces the progression. When what you have is multiplied, verse 12 and 13, then your heart swells with pride and you forget the Lord, verse 14. And you start believing what you have is not a gift from God, but the reward for your own effort and brilliance, verse 17. And you start to worship other gods, the gods of money and work and whatever else can provide you with more wealth, verse 19. Until finally you perish because you did not listen to the voice of the Lord your God, verse 20. So wealth Turns to pride, turns to self sufficiency, turns to idolatry, turns to death. And it's all because of this inverse relationship that we have between increasing wealth and decreasing remembrance of the Lord and what He's done for us. This was the danger facing the Israelites as they stood on the edge of the Promised Land that day. And it's the same danger we face today. And it doesn't take much to do this. It's not just a rich person's problem. We might not not be living in the Old Testament anymore, but God doesn't change and neither does human sin. And forgetting the Lord is fatal to our souls. Because just as those who were in the promised land, but whose trust in wealth proved that their hearts had actually never left Egypt... Well, if we forget the Lord and put our trust in our wealth, could it be that we ourselves are still slaves to sin and not part of God's kingdom? I wonder what you think is the biggest danger to Christianity in Australia today. Biggest danger. Maybe the rise of secular humanism, maybe the growth of other religions, maybe liberal Christianity. Well, these things are are serious, but I think there's one threat that outstrips them all. And it's actually the same threat that faced God's people in Deuteronomy 8, all those thousands of years ago. The greatest danger, not just to Christianity, but to the gospel in Australia today, friends, is Christians whose comfort and prosperity causes them to forget the Lord. I think it's fair to say that this is a particular danger here in Australia and maybe especially here on the Sunshine Coast. We live in one of the most beautiful parts of the world, one of the most beautiful parts of Australia, one of the most affluent parts of the world. It feels a bit like the promised land sometimes, doesn't it? Anyone move up from Melbourne, Sydney, promised land? Yeah. You don't have to put up your hands, it's okay. Now I sometimes have to pinch myself that I get to live here and I'm only renting. But compared to the Indonesian family and the compassion video, we might as well be living in a parallel universe. You know, not a week goes by where I don't meet someone else who's moved up from Melbourne or Sydney or even Brisbane, moved up to the coast, as they say, for the lifestyle. It's easy to live your best life here now without a second thought for God. And I don't just mean non Christians. I think this, this affects Christians as well. Over the 10 years I've served here at Grace and lived here on the coast, I've seen too many families give up on Christ and his people because they kept chasing the moving target of the Sunny Coast lifestyle. They started well, invested in church family, committed to Christ. But eventually the big mortgage, the toys and experiences, and the growing business and the social life and the clothes and expensive private school and the sports and the art school activities just filling up every spare white space in the diary. Let me say, these things aren't necessarily bad. We all approach them differently and with godly wisdom, I hope. But when you start skipping church on Sunday because you're so exhausted from the hard work of chasing the dream during the week, it's an indication there's something wrong. And sadly, there's a number of families I've seen in this situation where eventually these things choked God and his word out of their lives. In a kind of you know, <coughs> real-life illustration of Jesus' parable of the sower, where the seed fell among thorns and it grew up, it was choked by the cares of the world, Mark chapter 4. And it's not hard to see why. Because they had everything they ever wanted. And God didn't seem to matter anymore. And what's worse, in the process, they gave their kids a life lesson they would never forget. That comfort and prosperity and success are essential. But that Jesus is optional. and it's no wonder those kids abandoned the, the gospel their parents claim to trust. I'm not pointing fingers at anyone in particular. This is general observations over a decade. But I share this simply to point out how real the danger is for us living here on the beautiful Sunshine Coast. Please don't think this can't happen to you. If we begin to live like those around us, so that the comfortable Sunshine Coast believer is indistinguishable from his comfortable Sunshine Coast neighbor, then the gospel we claim to stake our lives on doesn't become offensive to those around us. It just becomes meaningless. Because what difference does it really make when we claim to belong to Jesus, but everyone can see that our security and joy and everything else actually just comes from our material wealth? so what do we do how do we avoid the danger of forgetting the lord even as his blessings to us increase well in the time we've got left i'd like to work back through our passage in deuteronomy chapter 8 and i'm going to highlight five lessons the bible gives us here about gaining wealth without forgetting the lord and so i'll ask anna to click over to the next slide because i don't think my click is working The first is we've got to do things God's way. This one really goes without saying, I think, but perhaps more so when we're wealthy. (coughs) Excuse me. So in verse 1, we read it earlier, Moses tells the people, the whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do. Same thing is echoed in in verse 6 and in verse 11 again about obeying the Lord, keeping his commandments. Our wealth doesn't give us the right to make the rules up as we go along. We don't get to live by the villain Jafar's golden rule from Disney's Aladdin movie, that the one with the gold makes the rules. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. He also told Timothy that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Wealth increases options for sin. And so all the more reason to be constantly and carefully and prayerfully searching our Bibles to answer the question, how does God want me to live? So that's the first lesson, to do things God's way. The second one is to Appreciate having less. You know, we're conditioned in our world to believe that affluence and prosperity is good and that anything less is to be avoided at all costs. We despise discomfort. And yet we see God's grace and his nurture in the discomfort and hardships his people experienced in their desert wanderings, even to the point where Uh, Moses said that God did it that he might do you good in the end, verse 16. Under God, discomfort had a purpose. Simplicity and humility had a purpose. For one, it broke their longing to return to the material comforts of Egypt. And for two, it prepared their hearts to receive the incredible blessings God had in store. Look at verse 5. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. It's a good reminder that poverty is not always a sign of God's anger any more than prosperity is always a sign of God's approval. And In fact, our aversion to living simply and humbly might actually be an aversion to our heavenly father teaching us to know him and love him more. So when we don't have much, do we ask the Lord to give us more or do we ask him to give purpose to our hardship and teach us to depend more deeply on him? And when we do have much, when the usual approach in our society is that our lifestyle is like a gas and it kind of expands to fit the available income, I wonder how many of us would actually choose to cap our standard of living at a level which makes us actively depend on the Lord for what we need and just give away the rest. A famous story about the 18th century Methodist preacher John Wesley uh, who, who grew up in grinding poverty. And towards the end of his life, he was a, a well-known traveling preacher and he was earning some 1,400 pounds a year which back then was a lot of money. But Wesley realized that all he needed to live on was 30 pounds a year. And uh, even though he adjusted for inflation every year, he decided to to cap his income at that point. He says, I don't need more. And he gave away the rest for the sake of gospel ministry. Very countercultural in our society to do something like that. But I wonder, would we, if we realized the wisdom of it, we might also consider the wisdom of a guy called Agur in proverbs 30 verse 5 where he prays two things i ask of you deny them not to me before i die remove far from me falsehood and lying give me neither poverty nor riches feed me with food that is needful for me lest i be full and deny you and say who is the lord or lest i be poor and steal and profane the name of my god Well, consider Paul's words in Philippians chapter 4. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So lesson number two, appreciate having less. God might have a purpose in it. And sometimes we need to actually uh, pursue having less to know God more. Thirdly, we need to gratefully enjoy God's gifts, because the solution is also not just to give everything away and become a hermit. Um, In fact, there's a point at which asceticism, the kind of complete rejection of material wealth, is actually a rejection of the good things that God has given us to enjoy. God is incredibly generous to us, giving us not just what we need, but so much more. And it's vital that we enjoy God's gifts to us in the right way. Look at verse 10. You shall eat and be full. And you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. So yes, it's okay to enjoy what God has given us. But we're to enjoy that that house, that holiday, that car, that jet ski, that expendable income with two things in mind. Number one, with joyful contentment, being happy with what we have and not always hanging out for the newer, the bigger and the better. And secondly, with praise and thanks for what God has given us and appreciating him. And so back to that same passage we read in 1 Timothy 6 earlier, godliness with contentment is great gain. And yes, gain is a financial word which means having more. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Number four, we need to recognize the source of our wealth. Verse 18 is a humbling reality check that it is God who gives you power to get wealth. Because we've got to remember where our wealth actually comes from. And it's not from our hard work. Or our skill in business or personal wealth management, it's it's not actually automatic that those things beget wealth. There are plenty of very sharp businessmen and businesswomen who suddenly find themselves with nothing through no fault of their own. I lived in London in two thousand eight during the GFC, I saw this. But there are also plenty of people making fortunes by making YouTube videos of themselves opening shoeboxes. Apparently it's a thing. But at the end of the day, whether you make YouTube videos or you have a real job, say that tongue in cheek, our effort and cleverness still has to fall in line behind the prayer that our Father in heaven would still give us this day our daily bread. That's number four. Recognize the source of your wealth. My apologies to the YouTubers. Number five, and perhaps this is the most important really, remember your rescuer. Finally... The most important way not to fall into the trap of forgetfulness is to remember how the Lord rescued you. This this is key to the backdrop of what Moses is saying here today. All the way through the passage, the people are to remember how the Lord rescued them. Verse 14, how the Lord your God brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Of course, we haven't been rescued from physical slavery in a foreign kingdom The exodus in the Old Testament was just a step along the way, as well as a vivid picture of what Jesus would ultimately do for God's people. Because we've been rescued from slavery to sin in the kingdom of darkness, and we're being brought into God's eternal kingdom, where his son, the Lord Jesus, rules forever. So the Bible reminds us in Romans chapter 5, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Friends, the gospel reminds us that we started from zero with nothing. We had nothing to offer God, nothing with which to earn his mercy. And yet, He gave us everything in Christ. A little further on in Romans chapter 8, the Bible reminds us, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also not with him graciously give us all things? That's Romans chapter 8, verse 32. The gospel tells us that everything we have, absolutely everything, comes from God. How could we possibly be so forgetful so as to place our eternal security in the gifts rather than in the giver? I think all of us probably have some work to do after a message like this some maybe some numbers to crunch, maybe some just conversations to have in our households. But whether we have a little or a lot, May God's good gifts to us drive us towards him in Christ and not draw us away from him in greed. Let's pray. Father God, you are so gracious to us. You give us far more than we can ever ask or imagine, far more than we deserve. But Lord, you also know our hearts and how easily our hearts are drawn to the gifts and away from the giver. Father, please help us this morning to remember what you have done for us in Christ and simply for the gospel to shape absolutely everything about who we are and what we do. We pray, Lord God, that even in a very wealthy and affluent society, people may see that there is something different about us. Because we know that all we have comes from you. We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who was given for us. Amen.
0: Well, friends, as we move towards.